reading is on page 1073 of the church bibles john chapter 8 verses 1 to 11. you will either find the reading appealing or possibly appalling jesus went to the mount of olives at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered round him and he sat down to teach them the teachers of the law and the pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery they made her stand before the group and said to jesus teacher this woman was caught in the act of adultery in the law moses commanded us to stone such women now what do you say they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him but jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger when they kept on questioning him he straightened up and said to them if any one of you is without sin let him be the first to throw a stone at her again he stooped down and wrote on the ground at this those who heard began to go away one at a time the older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there Jesus straightened up and asked her woman where are they has no one condemned you no one sir she said then neither do I condemn you Jesus declared go now and leave your life of sin this is the word of the Lord The second reading is from 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 13. Expel the immoral brother. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that does not occur even among the pagans. A man has his father's wife. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out your fellowship, the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I have written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or 
all the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or even a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Keith and Shirley, for those readings. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm a bit boomy. I don't know if we can make me less boomy. Was that just my natural voice? Well, thank you, Mike, for those words of introduction that do, does half the job of what I was about to say now, that we're looking at this series over the next five weeks, looking at the gift of sex and how to rightly enjoy it, and we'll be in the middle of 1 Corinthians as we do that. Now, I've got the great joy of introducing this series, really, setting the scene for the trajectory over the next five weeks. Let me pray for us first. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your kind, good, and loving gifts, and especially for the gift of sex. We pray and ask that by your word we'd rightly understand how to enjoy it, how to live in a right way with it, and Lord, that you might be honoured and glorified in our lives together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before I dig into the text, I'm aware that what we're looking at can be a tough and sensitive subject that Mike mentioned earlier. And uh, let me start with this, a well-known joke about a tourist in Ireland. Don't worry, this isn't an Irish joke, by the way, but it's set in Ireland. And the tourist stops a person and asks for directions to Dublin. And the Irishman turns to the tourist and says, well, if I were you, sir, I wouldn't start from here. Many of us, when we think about Christian discipleship, would not start here. We wouldn't end here. We perhaps wouldn't even go here, actually. I'm aware that as I um, have been talking about the fact we're going to be looking at this as a series, that there have been a number of reactions to people that I've mentioned this to. Three key ones. Firstly, one of fear that we just can't go there. We need to keep the peace, and this is one that can destroy unity. Secondly, a reaction of anxiety, that people have been hurt in this issue and really struggle. It's too sensitive an issue to talk about. And then thirdly, a reaction of exasperation. Christians are just known too much for talking about sex, actually. Well, I've got a lot of time for the last reaction, but actually here at St. Jude's, we haven't talked about it much, in fact, and actually, on the national scale, it's an issue that churches are talking about less and less as a discipleship topic. In fact, the pendulum has swung the other way, often to disastrous consequences, as we'll see. For that second reaction of anxiety, I have even more time. And if you're here and these issues touch on something personally for you, I want you to know that this is a place full of grace and love. And we want to be a people full of grace and love. 
And I and many others know what it is to struggle in some of these areas, actually. There's no one who isn't touched by these issues. Everyone, to some extent, is sexually broken because of the fall. And so this is a safe place, a loving place, and a welcome place. And we want to speak words of truth and love. To that last reaction of fear, however, I have very little time, I just want to say, right at the beginning. To fear anyone or anything apart from God in these issues shows that you've made an idol of the thing that you're fearing, whether it be comfort and a comfortable living or keeping the peace. It shows that you actually don't worship God in this. You're worshipping something else. Yes, we're to think lovingly and wisely about these issues, but the issues are too important, as we'll see, to keep silent about them. Well, going to 1 Corinthians, the, uh, the church in Corinth is a very interesting case study. We know from Romans 16, when Paul writes from the church, that it's quite a small church. It's a single house church, probably less than 50 people, even with the biggest houses back then. And yet for a church of about 50 people, it's got 14 major issues in 1 Corinthians that Paul has to address. 14 big things from over-charismatic nuttiness on one end of the scale to cliqueness and tribalism on the other side of the scale. It's got a lot of problems. Nearly every single person in that church would have had a major issue. But interestingly, it's to this issue of sexual brokenness, sexual immorality that he spills the most ink. And this isn't because Paul is a prude, otherwise he wouldn't go there at all, he wouldn't talk about it at all. But rather, as we see, there's two really important reasons he wants to address this in a quite substantive and in-depth way. And there are two reasons from this passage that mean it's really important for us as well to go there and look at these things over the next five weeks And so by way of introduction, I just want to highlight these two reasons. And the first is this, that sexualized culture is infectious. It is infectious. Paul begins the section with a really shocking incident that's got him through the grapevine. Let me read verse 1 again. It says this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of the type that does not even occur among the pagans. A man has his father's wife. There's a man in their church community who's either sleeping with their stepmother, or actually, you could actually read that and say he's actually sleeping with his mother. That'd be even worse. Either way, probably while his father's still around, and a very shocking incident. And for a small community, everyone would have known about this. And yet we read in verse 2 what their reaction is. It says this, And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and put out of your fellowship the man who did this? It's probably more shocking than the incident itself. They're not grieved over such a thing. They're actually proud about such a thing going on. And the good question is, how can they be proud about this? That just does not make sense. And scholars have come up with a number of theories as to what was going on in the life of the Corinthian church that means that they're proud about this. We're not going to go into them in depth, but some of them might have just fallen for cheap grace. I'm forgiven, therefore I can do whatever I want. And actually, the more I'm forgiven, the more I show just how forgiving a God we have. Or something that's been called over-realized eschatology, that heaven's come now, all that matters is the spiritual life, and nothing we do with the body really matters, and therefore we can do whatever we want. Isn't this great? 
Whatever the issue is that's going on here, key way to understand what this pride at heart is, is found back in verse 1, where it says this, There is sexual immorality among you, and of the type that does not occur even among the pagans. They were proud at heart because they were one up on pagan culture that surrounded them, that they were doing things that even the people around them wouldn't do. And they're proud of this. And that was quite a pride, not a good achievement at all. Because the culture around them was saturated, we know, with sexual issues, sexual immorality, sexual perversions. It was, for the Romans, a display of their power and prestige that they get away with such things. So, for example, polygamy was openly encouraged and legal. Orgies were regularly organized occasions that actually were akin to going to the theater. Rich men legally had young boys in their service just for their sexual release. And there's no such thing as marital rape or rape of a female or male slave. It was all legal and it was all fine, just part of being Roman. Somehow this sexualized culture that surrounded the church in Corinth had infected it. And like a virus, it actually mutated and become an even more dangerous form. Meaning the church actually was proud of these things. And they sometimes went even beyond the culture around them into sexual immorality. Now it's really important to understand this context for two reasons. Firstly, the fact that they were dealing with these things as an issue of discipleship in a sexualized culture shows that these things aren't, an ancient, aren't a modern problem, they're actually an ancient one. Actually, we think that we've got it tough, but they had it tougher as a church, trying to deal with these issues around them. And secondly, and more importantly, I want to suggest that society today is actually drawing very close to the levels of sexual satisfaction and desire in culture around them as the church experienced then, that actually our culture is becoming very, very close, drawing up almost parallel to the Roman culture of the time and has the same potential to endanger Christian followers. It's interesting that for nearly every single ancient practice I've just mentioned, there are modern equivalents. So for polygamy, there is swinging, which is the open practice of married couples finding other married couples to swap partners with. In some sections of society, actually, it's the done thing. There are websites devoted to matching married couples together to do that. Organized orgies still occur. They're just called something else, as one famous prime minister of Italy did recently. I've got a friend who was a Christian businessman, and he told me the story of how when he and his business partner and colleagues had finally signed a great deal that uh, sorted out their business for a number of years to come in London, that the other half of this deal, the firm that they were interacting with, invited them to come into a room to celebrate. And as they came into the room, suddenly they were just paraded right in front of him, a line of women, and they said, have your pick, have your pick of women. And very wisely, this guy ran out of the room the opposite way. Still exists. 
still exists. Sadly, now as them powerful men and women abuse children for sexual reasons, we know that very well from the press. And interestingly, marital rape and rape generally is still in parts of society just an okay thing. There's a recent study that suggests that on some university campuses that rape is something that one in five female students will encounter. That might be over-exaggerating it a bit, but even if that's close to the right statistic, that implies that actually women are aware that it's just the price of being young and female in that context. It's an awful thing. I'm not saying we're there yet, but we're drawing very close to the levels that this early church encountered. And these things are just symptomatic of what's been called our hypersexualized culture, where sex dominates culture rather than just being a side issue, where it becomes the main thing and the focal point. And this is often to disastrous effects. This is a culture where, of course, you can view pornography both on big screens and little screens that you carry around with you. Recent statistics show that the average age children are now exposed to pornography is between eight and nine years old. The highest users of pornography are those between 12 and 17, with 90% of them having seen hardcore porn. It's a culture where actually sex defines identity to a large extent. So, for example, movies like The 40-Year-Old Virgin or a TV series, Jane the Virgin, both show characters who have scorn just poured upon them because they haven't had sex. Sex is part of who you are. It identifies you. Whilst you all know the TV characters like Barney Stinson, if you watch that particular series, or Joey and Friends in the previous decade, who are just lauded for their sexual conquests. That sex makes up your identity. This is the age, let me suggest, that Isaiah predicted. He said that there will come an age when good will be called evil, and evil will be called good. And we shouldn't be surprised that just as in common, this wreaks havoc in the church, that actually the church becomes infected with this very easily and very quickly. I hate to do this, but actually you need to be aware that in this room, this will be an issue. And that actually this will be an issue that many of us will be struggling with. And that this is an issue that we can't avoid. There's uh, data from the anonymous Christian accountability website Covenant Eyes that reports that it's likely that one in two Christian men are addicted to pornography and one in five Christian women likely as well. 75% of Christian men access pornography on a regular basis. One in 10 admit to paying for prostitutes. And 80% of unmarried Christians admit to having regular sexual relations. Even church leaders don't escape this. It's been reported from a study that when church leaders go to leadership conferences, the number of adult films in hotels around that region that are rented out rocket, they go sky high, indicated the number one moral 
sin of church leaders in that situation is sexual immorality and lust. Many of us will know that one of the main reasons church leaders fall from places of ministry is moral failure and often of the sexual kind, though not only. I don't say these things to shock, to dismay, to necessarily disturb, but actually just so that we can see that this is a real problem. We're not protected from the culture around us. And actually, a hypersexualized culture will lead to awful things infecting the church, and already does. And we need to be aware of these things, we need to think clearly about them, and we need to seek God in the midst of them. Well, that was the first thing, that sexualized culture is infectious. But the second reason we're looking at these things, really, is that we're called to fight fire with fire. In our passage, Paul deals with what's going on with a double-pronged response, drastic action and deep truth. He knows how serious this is and therefore how serious the combat needs to be. Firstly, verse 4, despite not being there, he says you need to enact some judgment. He says this, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and I am with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. He basically calls the church to eject this person from their fellowship in a public gathering where everyone can see it being done. And that as a result of this, he'll be handed over to Satan, it says, so that he can be eventually saved. And the question, of course, is what does that mean? Sounds a bit dark, sounds a bit occultic, handing over to Satan. But very simply, it means that outside Christian community and church fellowship, one is open to spiritual warfare like never before. That actually the enemy hates you and will just seek to rob you of anything good from the Christian faith. And when this person finds himself in that situation, he'll be aware of that. And he will have to make a choice between Christ or Satan. (laughs) Between denial of the flesh or giving himself fully over to it. He'll have to make a very radical decision whether he wants to come back into the faith or not, and the fellowship of faith. And hopefully, hopefully he will choose for his first love. He'll choose for Christ in that context. This is drastic action. And you might want to say, where's the mercy in this? Jesus says in Matthew 18, you're supposed to do this in steps this being the last step, not all at once. Well, Paul goes on to explain why in verse 6, and this is where deep truth comes in. He explains the special danger they're in. Verse 6, he says, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. He says that the situation is like yeast in dough that rapidly multiplies and affects the whole dough. That sexual sin like this will have a rapid knock-on effect across the entire church. And this guy's example will infect others, corrupting innocent people into awful sin. And I want you to imagine the situation. Corinth, like many of the early churches, were full of new converts from other religions. 
And one of these new converts knows that this has been going on. This man has been committing incest. And if it was to be dealt with in a private or out-of-the-way method, this guy wouldn't hear of it, actually. And he would know that it happened and not have seen the dealing with it. And may well say to himself, oh, so actually the church didn't really care about that. Oh, does that mean that the Christian faith really is that faith of freedom I've been promised? Does that mean I can also do stuff like that? Does that mean I can go and explore and do even more than I used to in my old religion? Can you see what would happen if it was done in a private and out-of-the-way manner? The way it's dealt with has to be public and very clear to make sure it's made resoundingly clear that this stuff isn't right. Now for us, these are tough things. Sometimes the need will be for drastic action and sometimes it will be for a reminder of the truth, but often we need both. If you have action without truth here, well, actually, that can often be misguided and actually can cause even worse situations. But if you have truth without action, well, actually, that's just impotent and makes no different. What we need is exactly what Paul does here, the call to action and the reason behind it, the reason behind it, the deep truth behind it. Sometimes, for some of us, it will be a very clear call to action. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. He's, of course, over-exaggerating there, but he's trying to make a point. Sometimes you have to act very drastically in advance to stop this stuff. You'll remember that story of Joseph in Potiphar's wife's bedroom, who has to run out of the bedroom lest he be dragged into something wrong. Or modern equivalent, actually, is um, someone who's celebrating his 100th birthday this year, Billy Graham, who uniquely amongst the major evangelists of that generation didn't fall to moral or sexual, especially sin. And many of you know the reason why, that in advance he'd chosen to live by a number of rules, drastic action to stop this happening. One of the rules that shows what kind of guy he was was that he said, I am never going to be alone with another woman who isn't my wife, ever. Not going to happen in a car, in a room, in any kind of context. I won't be alone with another woman who isn't my wife. Extreme, actually. It meant that he used to walk out of rooms when he saw it was about to happen and miffed, miffed people off. But actually, that's because he knew. For him personally, that's what he had to do. For us, it will look different, actually. What's the action we need to put into place to avoid this stuff? For some of you, it's changing the settings on your laptop. So you simply can't access porn. It's that simple. It's hard to do, but there are settings that you can just say no. It's not happening. I can't access that stuff. For others here, it'll be that choice. I'm not going to spend any time with that person at all because I know what will happen if I do. 
I know what influence I'll come under, what I'll be tempted to do. I'm saying no, not going to happen. It'll be different for different people, but sometimes there's that clear-cut call for drastic action. But with that, as Paul does here, there needs to be deep truth. Otherwise, it just becomes dry and legalistic and won't last. You need to understand the truth as to why you're doing these things. For example, abstinence before marriage becomes a killjoy unless you understand how marriage amplifies sex as joy. Monogamy becomes much, much more difficult unless you understand God's truth for his design of a flourishing life. And actually, all sexual sin becomes very hard to resist unless you remember the truth that culture is quickly forgetting. That actually, sex isn't everything. It's not the pinnacle of the fulfillment of desires. It's actually just a foretaste of what's to come. We'll be looking at that over the next few weeks. That actually there are greater, more fulfilling joys that sex is just a shadow of. Those joys that are ours already. Let me end with a quote from uh, the American pastor John Piper who puts it like this. We must fight fire with fire. The fire of lust's pleasures must be fought with the fire of God's pleasures. If we try to fight the fire of lust with prohibitions and threats alone, even the terrible warnings of Jesus, we will fail. We must fight it with the massive promise of superior happiness. We must swallow up the little flickers of lust pleasures in the conflagration of holy satisfaction. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, some difficult issues, some tough things to think about this morning and over the next few weeks. We pray and ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'd help us to think rightly in these things. We pray for mercy for those of us in need of mercy in these things and grace. We pray for a waking up and a clarion call for those who need that. And we ask, Lord, that through the work of your word, by the power of your spirit, you change us to be more like you in loving, winsome holiness. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.